I don't know if you've been paying attention to the news, but there's a lot going on in our world right now. And so I wanted to just take a moment and pray, uh, kind of in a posture of uh, seeking. Uh, we're going to talk in just a moment about forgiveness and reconciliation. And from that place of wanting to see God's shalom, wanting to see the kingdom of right relationships, God's kingdom of peace reign in our world, I felt like it was appropriate to take a moment and pray for our whole world, uh, but particularly for, uh, for Israel, for Palestine, for the Middle East, and some of the stuff that we're seeing happen right now, which is heartbreaking, right? So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do, uh, we have a lot going on in our own lives um, and in our community here in Davis, but we also know that there is a lot of things going on uh, around this world, this good world that you made. And we know that uh, violence, war, tragedy breaks your heart. As we talked about last week, the cross is greater than the sword, but sometimes it feels like the sword wins. And so we bring that to you this morning, God. We pray for peace in the Middle East. We pray for uh, protection of life. This is a, a situation that's deeply complex and, and ancient in many ways. And so we know there isn't necessarily a quick fix. And I, I just, I personally know of people on the ground who are doing the work of peacekeeping, God. I pray over them this morning that you would keep them safe. That you would protect them, that you would protect innocent life, that you would protect life in that place. We may not know how to respond or what to think, God, but we do know that your desire is not for uh, there to be war and violence and apartment buildings being blown up, but for healing and restoration, for human life to flourish. And so we pray against evil and we pray for peace and shalom. And if there is any way that we can help contribute to that, even in our corner of the world here this morning, God, <clears throat> may we be a community that contributes to that. Now, as we turn our attention to, to Scripture, uh, again, it can feel like a, a, a conversation that's very internal, and yet this is the work of good neighbors, forgiving and reconciling. It is the work you have called us to and it must happen here if it is to happen anywhere. And so we pray that you would give us the courage to follow Jesus, the radical act of forgiveness. We pray all this this morning in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. All right, Matthew chapter 18. We're going to kind of walk through the whole chapter. But for now, I want us to begin in verse 21. Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Peter, I think in this moment, it thinks he's pretty clever. Right? Like, ooh, I'll go, I'll go big. I'll go seven. 
Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Some translations will say 70 times seven. In other words, a lot. Like you just, you keep on doing this. Then Jesus tells a story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. And the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins, and he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servants just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Woo! Okay. Here we go. Got to the age where they could start to do stuff and verbalize things and, and talk to each other, which means, you know, uh, fight, right? When they got to that stage, we very quickly realized, like, oh, uh, like we need to have a, we need to like have a thing. Like we we need to figure out how to help them do this. Like how to work through these things together. So we developed this thing. It's not very. I mean, it's not radical by any stretch of the imagination, but. This is our process that we taught our kids when they started to get into arguments, okay? I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Is there anything I can do to help? And you'll notice the blank space there is really the important part, right? Because it's not just I'm sorry, it's I'm sorry for, and then actually naming the thing that you did, right? I am sorry for calling you a booger face. Will you forgive me? Is there anything I can do to help? These days, we've got this down at this point. Like, they know it. It's kind of a routine. And now we're working on tone. Right? Because you can say all the right words, and yet it's not really an apology. Are you with me? Right. <laughs> now, this is not just something that our kids do. This is something that we do with our kids. We model this for them. Uh, Cruz, I'm sorry that I got angry and frustrated and, and raised my voice. Will you forgive me? Is there anything I can do to help? And it's something that we model between each other. Amy and I will do this process. We'll do it in front of our kids because they need to see that as well, right? Because a family is a community, right? A family is a web of relationships. And to live in right relationship with each other, we have to do the work, the sometimes hard and painful work 
of forgiveness and reconciliation. And in the same way, a church is a family, and this is our work as a church family, right? To do this process of forgiveness, of seeking and pursuing reconciliation, even though that may not always be possible, to seek and pursue it as much as we can. Because we can't be, here's the thing, friends, we cannot be good neighbors. Like Jamel said, to the the guy who, who we pull the trash cans out with every week, we cannot be good neighbors to the people on our street, in our workplace, in our classes, if we cannot do this work here. It's a both and. We have to be able to forgive one another so that we can then engage fully and freely in the mission of loving our neighbors as ourselves. Now, we're in week five of this conversation that we've been calling Good Neighbors. Week one, we looked at uh, this idea of love over fear. Good neighbors follow Jesus by receiving God's love, sharing that love with others, which, which will open us up to things that we're afraid of, right? Misunderstanding, rejection, things like that. Week two, we looked at truth over lies. Good neighbors follow Jesus by serving. God is a servant. We're most like God when we serve. The lies that we looked at there are, are that serving is reserved for the spiritually elite. And then the lie that it's all up to us, right? We just have to do a bunch of stuff and work really hard to fix all the problems in the world. Week three, empowerment over coercion. Good neighbors follow Jesus by empowering others. In the kingdom of God, authority and power is given away. Last week we looked at the cross over the sword. Good neighbors embrace the way of the cross and blessing, right, sacrificial blessing. And we actually have um, some cards on the connection table out there that walk you through the blessing process. If you're like, what the heck is bless mean? Um, You can pick that up. There's some resources on that card as well. Take a look at that on your way out. Now today, forgiveness over resentment. Good neighbors follow Jesus into the radical practice of forgiveness. So to Matthew chapter 18, we learned last week that Matthew writes his version of the Jesus story to a primarily Jewish audience. His readers, his listeners, right, the original audience would have been formed by the Torah, which is what we call uh, the, the first five books of our Bible, or what they call the first five books of our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then, of course, the whole Old Testament story of Sin. And so Matthew found the five books of Torah, and then he builds his story of Jesus around five big teachings that Jesus gives. Last week, we were in the first of those teachings, what's sometimes called the Sermon on the Mount. This week, uh, Matthew 18 happens to be the fourth big teaching section. And the idea here, the idea of of this fourth teaching is, is to give some practical insight into the kingdom of right relationships. If the Sermon on the Mount was the vision, this is what we're aiming for, then this one is more, here's some like nuts and bolts things that you can actually do to live this way. So the whole thing opens at the beginning of the chapter with Jesus describing the posture that one must assume to enter the kingdom, and that is the posture of a child. Dependent, trusting, open, lowly, 
humble. We must enter the kingdom like children. Then Jesus switches gears and he begins to use the technique, the wonderful technique of exaggeration to make his point throughout the rest of this teaching. So from there, if you look at verses 6 through 9, Jesus starts talking about things like millstones and cutting off your hand and gouging out your eye if it causes you to sin, right? He's using exaggeration to make a point. And his point is this. Even though it sounds harsh, he's using exaggeration as a warning. Warning his disciples against undermining the mission. Using exaggeration to warn his disciples against undermining the mission. This is Jesus building on the missional posture that we've been unpacking over the last several weeks, right? This reality that we, we build on the foundation of Jesus, who then gives us a mission and then organizes us into churches to accomplish that mission, right? Jesus is saying there are some ways that we can get in the way of the mission. And the mission is not just about, hey, Here's some stuff to do. I I need you to be really busy. So I'm going to give you some jobs. No, the mission is about God's heart. This is about what God cares about the most. And this is summed up in the, the very next part of the chapter. This is reflective of the song that we just sang a moment ago. This idea of a shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep to go find the one lost one, right? Jesus is saying, this is God's heart. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Now, he does a really interesting thing in this text. Okay, So he says, to enter the kingdom, you must become like a child. Then he starts warning them, hey, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Then he starts talking about God's heart for the lost and for Little ones, so he's gone from child, which is the Greek word tekron, to little ones, which is the Greek word micron. And he's going to keep using this word micron throughout the rest of the chapter. We become tekrons, children, to enter the kingdom. And then we join the mission to welcome microns, little ones. Micron was a broad term referring to anyone in a given society who was weak or powerless. Jesus' mission, again, this is not just spiritual. Welcome microns back into the kingdom, back into the family. And so part of that mission is removing barriers. And you can see then why becoming a barrier would be a serious problem. Which I think raises a couple of hard and challenging questions for us. In what ways can we impede the mission? In what ways do we cause, again using Jesus' language here, in what ways do we cause microns to stumble? Now, there's probably a long list, if we're being honest, right? There's probably a lot of ways that we might do that. But Jesus names very clearly one barrier, and he just hones in on it in this discourse, this teaching. We impede the mission when we allow relational dysfunction to consume our time and energy. Now, this is important, not just because it undermines the mission, this is important because there's always going to be 
relational dysfunction. Right? You put two human beings together in the same place, they will find something to fight about at some point, right? We're always going to find ways to hurt each other, to, to disappoint each other. We'll break relationship with each other because we're simple people. Now, here's the thing. Healthy communities are not free of conflict. Sometimes we think like, oh, there's no conflict there. They must have it all together. Either you haven't been there long enough or something weird is going on. Right? People are not being real with each other. Healthy communities have conflict and find ways to work through it. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Is there anything I can do to help? Right? Unhealthy communities either, either pretend that it's not happening or, or, you know, just push it down and avoid it. Or get really mad at each other and it turns into a whole mess. Now Jesus here next gives us a process. And this is actually something we looked at last week. He gives us a process that can lead to healing and free us up to participate in his mission. And the process goes like this. You go straight to the person and you talk it out. Now, this is totally unscientific. I haven't collected hard data on this, but in my experience, most of the time, this actually works. There's obviously exceptions to that, and so Jesus says, when that doesn't work, bring in someone else. If that doesn't work, bring in more people. If that doesn't work, then maybe it is time to move on. Unfortunately, our tendency is to skip this step of going straight to the person and talking about it. And so we simmer, right? We talk to somebody else, we vent, we email, when we should go straight to the source and do our best to clear it up. And again, if that doesn't work, bring in someone else. If that doesn't work, engage the larger community. Now, it's at this point that Peter interrupts, right? Peter interrupts with his question and impression that Peter, at this point in the story, like he's been listening to Jesus talk about this, you know, Tekrons, Microns, enter the kingdom as a child, forgive one another, God's heart, all this stuff. He's thinking about this, and he's processing, and he's like, he's just, you know, uh, been really frustrated with John, Right, that, that dummy, John. And then Jesus starts talking about this. Or maybe the whole team had some sort of conflict that they were moving through that, that sort of spurs Jesus into this, into this conversation. I don't know, but you get the sense that the wheels are turning. And again, Peter is like, okay, I know we need to forgive each other, but there's got to be a limit, so I'll go big. I'll go seven. And Jesus is like, oh, no, no, no. No, it's, it's, there's no, it's not a limit. It's not a number. It's not a requirement. Keep forgiving. By the way, this is what we do, right? Jesus creates all this space for us to play in the kingdom. And we're like, well, but what about, like, what about this? And we want to name it and dissect it and put a label on it. And Jesus is like, but hey, like, look, at, like, look at this whole thing. Right? This is what we do. Now, quick confession. 
couple of months ago, I was processing a difficult relationship with my spiritual director. His name is Bob. And um, I'm telling him, I'm like, Bob, this, uh, this is literally the words that came out of my mouth. I'm like, Bob, how many times am I going to have to forgive this person? And Bob smiles and he goes, oh, I think there's a story about that. <laughs> I think there's a story about that. Now, here we come to the second example of exaggeration. So the first time Jesus uses exaggeration to warn. This time, Jesus uses exaggeration to reveal God's heart. The, the whole point of this story is to tell us something important about God. Yes, there's a part that we play. Yes, there's a response. Yes, he wants us to forgive one another and work through the process of reconciliation. But what he wants us to know most is God's heart. And so he tells this story not to, not to prescribe how we do forgiveness, but to tell us, to describe for us something important about God. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Now, 10,000 bags of gold, if you, do, if you break it down in the Greek, this is Jesus' way of saying 10 bazillion gillion dollars. All right, this is a crazy amount of money. This is like Bezos can't pay this back. Elon can't pay this back. Nobody can pay this. It, it's, it's so over the top. And what's even more ridiculous about the story is that the guy's like, I'll do it. I'll pay it back. Just give me more time. Which is a totally ridiculous statement. Like, nobody can do this. But then he begs for mercy. He begs for mercy and the debt is canceled. The debt is canceled. The impossible, ridiculous, over-the-top, no human being could pay this back debt is just gone. And so what does he do? He turns around and he goes out and he immediately finds somebody who owes him money. Shakes him down for... 100 silver coins. Now, this is about three to four months of salary. So not nothing, but nowhere near the bazillion gillion dollars that he had owed, right? And not only that, but it was actually possible for this guy to pay this amount back. This second servant says exactly the same thing. Be patient with me. I'll pay it back. He can actually do this if given enough time. But that first servant refuses to show mercy, and he has him thrown in jail. And the lack of mercy in the Gospel of Matthew that God has described as angry. And, and again, I don't think that this is like an arbitrary uh, thing. I, I don't think the point of the story is don't make God mad. But God's heart is broken by broken relationships. God's heart is broken when we can't forgive each other. When we don't extend mercy and forgiveness to 
each other. What causes Jesus to pull out one of the most exaggerated, over-the-top teachings in the book of Matthew? It is a lack of mercy. To withhold mercy from fellow microns is antithetical to the good news of Jesus. Again, we can't be good neighbors in Davis, on campus, wherever we might be, if we can't work this out together. If we can't forgive each other, it will get in the way of the mission. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. This story is about what God is like. Again, there's a response for us, but this story is about showing us what God is like, and God is merciful. Right? God cancels debts. God covers our mess. Jesus came to remove the barriers so that we could be in right relationship with him and with each other. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. One of the clearest ways to know that we are following Jesus in his ways is when we are showing mercy to each other and doing the hard work of forgiveness. I told you last Sunday that we were going to have the opportunity to hear from Justin, our newest elder. And so this, this whole idea, I think, is, is deeply reflected in the process that Justin has been through over the last several years. So I wanted him to, to share with you guys a little bit of insight that he's gained from all of that. So let's welcome Justin to the stage. One more time. Justin Keneshoff. All right, so uh, Justin, um, you uh, you moved to Davis fifteen years ago. Two thousand eight. Wow, nailed it. Um, and uh, at that point, you 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 would not describe yourself as a follower of Jesus. No. So you moved to Davis. You start following Jesus, and then you very quickly get elevated into leadership. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that process? Yeah, so I grew up in the Midwest on farms and ranches. Uh, would describe myself as like a culturally cultural Christian at the time, meaning uh, my family went to church, but really never went any deeper with God. Um, and uh, it was around this time in middle school that I started to develop a lot of baggage with loving people. Um, I was heavily bullied uh, to the point that I didn't really even want to go to school. And so from that point on, my dream was to have 40 acres uh, with a well-manicured lawn, a dog, and some antique tractors that I would restore. <laughs> but uh, at no point in that story was there another human being. <laughs> now, fast challenge at the about Christianity and being a good neighbor of uh, loving God and loving others. But there was only one problem, and that was that I didn't really know how to love other people. Reluctantly, because uh, really wasn't any interest of mine to go to some stranger's house and talk about church stuff. Uh, not to mention, I thought it was really weird that people prayed in circles. Um, but then I remembered that the leader said that there would be dessert at the 
uh, at the gathering, so I said, all right, I'll go. Because, I mean, God always meets us where we're at. Uh, and it was in this group that God really kind of flipped my mindset about what it means to love other people on his head. Uh, the people in that group gave me time, experiences, uh, and hospitality. And I really felt like they accepted me as I really was. Uh, the main couple uh, were from Kansas. Um, actually, if you guys know Jeff Hadichek, he was his uh, uh, mentor in college was, was the couple. Um, and they invited me over before a group every single week, and uh, I got to share meals with them and talk with them. Uh, the people in that group stayed after, stayed after um, group was done to play board games and uh, just to talk, and it was really through that group that I was able to feel fully loved, fully accepted for who I was, um, and not to really think about be, being someone who I wasn't. Um, and it was through this group that I realized that uh, no longer was my dream really to live alone. I now could no longer live without community. And so it was also through this group that I was encouraged to serve. Um, and the first place that I served was actually at the soundboard, uh, which I still do, do to this day. And uh, little did I know that God was using that experience of serving, uh, just simple thing behind the soundboard, um, as a way to bring me closer to himself and who he was creating me to be, which is a servant. And through serving, God taught me a lot about joy. Not only the joy that I was receiving as I served, but also the joy that he was receiving as I used the gifts that I was given. And I would say that God delighted in me as I used the gifts, which I think is something that we don't really talk about in the church a whole lot, how God delights in us. Um, God delights in us when we use the gifts that he's given us. He delights in us when we uh, encourage one another, when we have meals together. He delights in us when we stick up for those outside of the church and uh, when we really be the church to the community. Um, and so, after serving on the soundboard uh, consistently for a while, leadership started asking me to serve in other areas of discovery. Uh, I led Sunday morning setup and teardown, led a small group, led the sound team, a few other places. And then eventually, they asked me if I would be an elder. And I was pretty excited. Um, I mean, you know, it's a big role. Uh, and this leader saw in me a few traits. Uh, they saw in a servant's heart, eagerness to grow, loyalty, and just being a friend. And I thought, wow, I'm really, I'm really wanted here. Uh, and there's really no doubt in my mind that I could do this role. So I said yes. I think he served. Uh, Justin becomes an elder, and um, I think he served five, six years. Yeah. Uh, through... Um, like, if you were to do a top ten list of crazy things that can happen in church, there was at least three or four that happened um, during the time that you were an elder. So there's crazy stuff happening, plus just your own kind of growth and development, and you, you had, you know, basically burn out at, at some point. Do you want to talk about how that happened or what that experience was like? 
Yeah, so I mean, I mean, it all started honestly when I started um, because uh, when they asked me, I was actually, I was only a Christian for two years when they asked me. Uh, so I was immature in my faith. Um, I thought I was ready, but looking back, I was quite naive. Um, and honestly, I didn't really know what I didn't know. Oh, also, I got married a month after I started eldership. Uh, so uh, not only was I figuring out how to help shoulder the burden of leading a church, but I was also figuring out how to be a husband. And honestly, my marriage kind of took a backseat to eldership. Uh, there was this rule at Discovery. It's not a rule anymore. Uh, otherwise, I wouldn't be here. Um, there was a rule that we couldn't share what was happening with our spouses. So I would come home from meetings visibly upset um, and worried uh, about what was happening, and I couldn't talk to Kayla about it. Um, yeah, and there was, there was the time during a marriage, the first part that honestly I wasn't even that present uh, with, with Kayla. Um, it was, it was, honestly, it was messed up. It was a toxic environment. Uh, but at the time, I didn't really question it. I figured that's, that's how things were, and that's for the best. But then I started to see people around me that I'd served with uh, start to step down from their position and immediately leave the church. Um, see a lot of people burn out. In fact, every single person who I served with during the first uh, two terms are no longer at Discovery. And looking back, like, one of my main problems was that I wasn't secure enough in my, and I, to be able to be confident in myself, meaning that I saw myself as young, and I assumed that other people around me were wiser uh, and had more valuable things to say than I could bring, so I deferred to other people's judgment um, and deferred, honestly, to whatever the senior pastor said, because I assume they were right. They're not always right. <laughs> uh, and honestly, during the time, I kind of knew that I, was, I wasn't doing great uh, as an elder. I remember being between terms and not really feeling like I should continue, but the rest of the team encouraged me to continue. Um, and so I did, I signed up for a second term. Um, there's a lot of things, like Steve said, that I experienced during my time, uh, difficult staff transitions, uh, significant unresolved conflict between leaders and spouses, uh, several times having to deliver difficult elder updates from stage, uh, seeing the pain in people's eyes who, um, the decision, uh, learning how to merge with another church, uh, and a bunch of other things. Um, but it was really through this time that, um, yeah, that I started to get burned out. So at the end of 2017, I stepped down for being an elder and uh, kind of went into hibernation mode. I'll use a metaphor of the seed. Um, so when a seed falls from a tree, Usually, sometimes it'll fall during the fall, and then winter will come, snow will come, it'll rest on the seed uh, until that seed is ready to germinate in the spring. And it was during this time of 
stepping down from eldership that I kind of went into hibernation mode. Um, I was nearly burned out, um, if not fully, um, but I stayed engaged. I continued to serve because that's the thing that really gave me joy in life. Um, but I didn't, I didn't lead any other ways. I just worked behind the soundboard. And uh, during this time, I also did a lot of self-reflection work um, in 2019, 2020. And there was a lot of pain during this time as I kind of processed my previous eldership. Um, I really struggled with my per perceived failures as a leader. Uh, the failures of our past discovery leadership, struggling with feelings of abandonment um, as the people around me left. Really didn't struggle with that at all growing up, uh, but I sure as heck ex experience it now. I also struggled with feelings that I was part of the problem of church hurt, that I had been part of a system that caused the people that I led harm and pain. And honestly, for a long time after I stepped down, I felt unworthy to even lead to, again. There were times when I, I felt worthless and often would ask myself, what am I actually contributing to this community? And often struggled to really give an answer. Um, you, sorry, you got me, Justin. <laughs> Give me a second. Uh, so you, you're in this process of, of unpacking these feelings and exploring all of that. How did you find your way out of that? Did you find your way out of that? <laughs> well, if I didn't, I wouldn't be here. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know that I can really pinpoint a, uh, a specific moment when I started to kind of come out of that. Um, but there was definitely a point in my life where, in the last couple of years, where I, I started to sense, uh, going back to the seed metaphor, that the shell was like cracking open and that something new was coming out, something that was hopeful uh, started coming out. And I did, I did a lot of work, uh, spiritual direction, uh, processing with people, conversations with people, and um, yeah, I think, I think that something that we don't talk a whole lot about is that when we, when we have feelings of regret and feelings of pain, uh, especially when we feel like we, we were like part of that system, like we need long, <clears throat> took the longest for me. Um, and yeah, like I said, it took a lot of processing, a lot of, uh, guidance from my uh, spiritual, spiritual director, um, which is, that's just a, a way to process what God is doing in your life and uh, ways that you can learn to see him uh, all around you. Um, and it was during this time that I learned about myself. I learned uh, more about my emotions. Uh, growing up, my family did, not, family did not teach me about emotions or like how to express them in a healthy manner or like what to do when you feel angry or, or sad, my uh, typical response is to stuff it. And, uh, but it's gonna come out at some point and uh, not always in a great way. So learning more to talk about 
in my emotions and what I'm actually feeling and sharing that with people. And um, yeah, I also learned about my, my passions, things that God has given me uh, desires and strengths, finding out what, li- what gives me life again. Um, and I really leaned into those things, things like pursuing relationships, meeting with people one-on-one, investing in young adults, um, helping people start a budget uh, is something that I love doing. And as I process, like, I still have all the qualities that the original leader saw in me, a servant's heart and eagerness to grow, loyalty and friendship, but God has, over time, made them more complex um, and kind of expanded what I think they mean. Um, and as I did that processing and I, I sat in the pain, the kind of the idea and the message that I kept getting over and over again was that God was taking me through the previous season in order to prepare me for the next. So <clears throat> to tell us about that. What, what is the next season? Why, why are you excited about it? Um, I think I said this before, but I'll just say it again. Um, it's rare for someone to come back and eld again. Um, and I think it's a beautiful, still here, and you, you want to do this again. Um, but some people might look at that and go, you want to do it again? <laughs> so what gives you hope for this time around? Well, as I process the previous season, uh, there were several things that God helped me to see that I could do differently. Uh, this time, I really, I mean, leaders, we should be humble. Uh, we should lead with humility. We might, be, we might be leading, but we don't know everything. Um, we're just, we're normal people. Uh, we're flawed people. All of you in this body are just as important, if not more so, and we're here to serve you. And we don't, we don't know how to, we don't know everything of how to lead a church. Like, you all have good input as well. So, like, I want to be able to listen to you. I want to hear what you're struggling with, hear your concerns, hear the things that you're celebrating in life, uh, things that you're mourning about. Like, I want to hear all that. We want to hear all that. Um, also, I mean, we might say something wrong. Uh, we're, I mean, inevitably, we're going to say something wrong. Uh, something that hurts you. Um, so when that happens, we, we need to know about it. Uh, and we, we're trying our best. Um, and I think that any of us here would say the same. So give each other the benefit of the doubt and assume that, like people are actually trying to do their best. And honestly, I have, this time around, I have a a higher aspiration for leading, and that's really to see the body fully unified and the church fully unified. Um, Like I said, each of you have unique gifts and passions and desires that God has given you that I don't have or Steve doesn't have, and it takes all of us together in order for the body of Christ to be like a full picture of herself. Um, I also have a lot more confidence in my giftings and my strengths Um, And I know that I can provide community or provide value to this community 
which is something that I wouldn't have been able to say a couple years ago. Um, I'm excited about Elding again, honestly. Um, I, not with any delusion that things will automatically, you know, be amazing, um, but because I know that the pain and effort of understanding each other is worth it. Thank you, Justin. Give him a hand. Um, as Justin said, he's, he's a man who loves to sit down and have a long conversation. So if you want to know more of his story and about that, um, feel free uh, to take him up on that. I want to invite the band to come back. And I just want to prepare us for communion um, uh, by reading over you a passage of Scripture. Um, this is actually from the Old Testament. And again, I, I said this before, but my hope today is not that you feel this burden to, like, go forgive everybody. It, I mean, that's part of it, right? Naming those things, working through that process, is, as Justin said, is, is a huge part of it. But underneath that, behind that, around that, whatever, whatever word works for you, is the reality that this is who God is. Right, the mercy and grace and love of God is at the core of all of this. And so when we get to this sort of story and we see the canceling of massive debt, right, the mercy of the king and the master in this parable, Jesus is saying, pay attention to this. This is what God is like. All right, this is what God is like. And this is why Jesus came. This is what Jesus did through his life and death and resurrection, canceling the debt, removing the barriers, welcoming the microns, making it possible for us to receive and experience forgiveness, but then also to extend that to others. I want to invite you to stand if you're able as I read this over us. And then again, we're going to take communion. If you'd like to pray with someone, uh, we'll have people on either side of the theater um, as we sing these closing songs. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever. Remember the anger that we talked about? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sin underfoot and hurl our, all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Remember, Jesus uses that metaphor, right, in Matthew 18, being hurled into the depths of the sea. What ultimately is hurled is our sin. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? Let's pray. Father, we are... We're, we're, uh, astonished as we come to the table this morning thinking about the barrier that our rebellion has created and the lengths that you went through to, to cancel that. Again, as the story that Jesus tells shows this impossible task that you have made possible through the life and death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. Who is a God like you? Would you give us the courage to do the work that we need to do of forgiveness and pursuing reconciliation? But again, underneath that, may we know your heart. 
May we know your heart, God. That it delights in showing mercy. That it delights in us. That it desires to be in relationship with us. We celebrate this this morning as we come to the table. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.